0: You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. Good morning. Delighted to be with you here. Thanks to Pastor Bob for the invitation to come and be with you and to speak this morning. This is a real honor. Uh, I've been out here in California for the last week or so, Uh, First up in uh, the Malibu area, we had a pastor's retreat that I was a part of. Uh, I went through, I think, my first California earthquake and slept right through it on (laughs) Tuesday morning, so uh, I'm all prepared to live here. Uh, The last uh, three or four days here in Northern Orange County uh, with some uh, Karis Fellowship meetings that your church was kind enough to host in this very room, and I want to say thank you uh, not just to the leadership, but to all of you for your kind, warm welcome to serve and to assist our fellowship of churches. It's been a delight to be here. I don't look forward to being back in Ohio tomorrow. (laughs) Your weather's a little bit better. I've known Pastor Bob for a number of years, uh, both of us as uh, doctoral students at Trinity uh, outside of Chicago. Uh, He actually finished the program first. I'm still in the last leg of it. So congratulations to Dr. Bob. In addition to that accomplishment, you have a fine pastor, and I hope that you thank God for him and for others who serve you well in that way. Little background on me. I am married to Letitia, almost 28 years. We have four children. Our oldest daughter, Hannah, got married this past summer. She's a pediatric nurse in Nashville with her husband. Uh, our second child, Joshua, is a junior at Wheaton College outside of Chicago. And then we have two children, Cedric and Alicia, who are a senior and sophomore in high school. It's a busy time of year, and it's an expensive time of life but we love them all. Uh, For the last 12 years, I've served as a lead pastor at Grace Polaris Church on the north side of Columbus, Ohio. Before that, we spent 10 years in Berlin, Germany, where all of our children were born. As of four weeks ago, January 1, I'm the incoming executive director of Encompass World Partners, which means I've been in it just long enough to recognize that I have no idea what I'm doing. And I hope that they give me plenty of time to figure that out. I'm following in the footsteps of uh, Dave Giles, who served for 23 years in that post and uh, has charted a great course for us. And I echo what Bob said about the connection that Encompass brings uh, to our fellowship of churches. Encompass's mission is to spread the knowledge of the glory of God to the least reached of our world. And I'm so thankful for churches like the one here in Seal Beach, which is actively involved in not only embracing, but sending and proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. I bring you greetings and also thanks from those uh, global workers that you support in a lot of different places, particularly in Europe, uh, whom I know pretty well, and some in Asia that I don't know as well. Thank you for the ways that you pray and communicate and give and encourage them that is uh, more valuable than you can know. While I am uh, promoting Encompass Things, uh, you may have uh, seen this, and some of you have a copy of it. Uh, I think you received a shipment of these about... Uh, four, six weeks ago. This is a prayer guide, 30 day prayer guide, uh, Encompass Workers and Encompass Initiatives. And if you want more of these and you may have run out, then you need to talk to Pastor Bob and get another shipment in here. This is a great thing for you as a church to go through or for you individually to go through. Again, it's for a month of sustained prayer and helps acclimate you not only to what your church is involved in, but how you can pray for those workers, a great way to participate in God's work around the world. Our desire as a mission organization is to help local churches as they pray and give and welcome and send, and for some, go to the least reach to the ends of the world. Our text today is going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, although we'll look at the first chapter as well. So if you have a Bible, turn there. If you have a hard copy, extra credit to you because you'll see the context of Paul's uh, remarks toward the end of chapter 2. Sometimes in life you hear things that you cannot forget, and a time like that occurred for me in October of 2020. If you transport yourself back in time, we were about six months into the pandemic. There had been spikes that had occurred. A vaccine was promised and coming. Political uh, interest was redlining. Cultural tension was, was boiling over. Racial justice and other issues in our country were dominant. Do you remember that time? It wasn't that long ago. And at that time, I came across a kind of TED Talk from Dr. Ed Stetzer. Ed Stetzer is a researcher. He directs what's called the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. And Ed is a never-ending source of insights and ideas. And the theme that they grabbed me, and I wasn't able to shake it. And here's what he said. The moment we're in doesn't pause the mission we're on. Let me say that again. The moment we're in doesn't pause the mission we're on. It doesn't change it. It doesn't stop it. It doesn't pause it. And his point was simple. Jesus issues to his followers a particular calling. He's given us a specific mission in the world. And nothing in the circumstances of life has authority or priority to stop it. Not cultural tensions. Not political turmoil, not economic upheaval, not natural disasters, not global pandemics. The moment we're in doesn't pause the mission we're on. Now, we've all heard endlessly about the moment or the season that we are in. In the last handful of years, especially the last three, they have been unlike almost anything that we've experienced In our lifetimes, at least mine, things like stability and security and shalom have been strangely distant in recent years. And our world, you've probably noticed, is this cauldron of conflict and tension and upheaval. And we've even faced it in the last week in California. You know that too well. Ed Stetzer pointed out that there are some realities about our day that are strangely similar to realities in the late 1960s. Now that was before I was born a few years. But if you're over the age of 60, you probably remember it. Protests and riots and assassinations and elections. It was a tumultuous time. It was a time in which it felt like the world was becoming unhinged. That people were becoming unglued. That things or people were losing their minds. Uh, A few decades later, Billy Joel captured that era and some events later in a memorable rant or song that went like this. We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't start the fire. No, we didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. You remember that. And whatever the parallels are between that time and our time, we live in an undeniably rapidly changing moment. And just when we think that life couldn't become more difficult or conflicted or painful, it does. Newsflash, we live in a broken, conflicted world. And we didn't choose that. But for followers of Jesus, our knowledge of God calls us to go beyond that to experience the world in a different sort of way, to view it with our perspective counterculturally. Specifically, the Bible asks us to confess that God has allowed this moment, that God is in control and that we can trust God. After all, don't we believe in the sovereignty of God, the plan of God, the purposes of God? And we also believe in the mission of God. And God has one for our time. You might sit there and ask, well, what kind of mission could exist that's not sidelined by the circumstances of our world? Financial, cultural, moral, global tumult, chaos. Is there really a calling that transcends the circumstances in which we live? And the answer, resoundingly, is yes. And not just because of the mission itself, but also because the Lord of the mission I would submit to you today that there's arguably no better description of our mission as Christ followers than what Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And here is that mission found in chapter 2, verse 14. He writes, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. And when we view that verse in context, We discover that Paul is saying, in other words, the moment we're in doesn't pause the mission we're on. Now to fully appreciate what Paul is saying here, we need a little bit of context. He's writing to the church in the city of Corinth, and ancient Corinth wasn't a placid place either. Ancient Corinth was a port city at the southern end of what we call Greece today, a bustling city. The history of Corinth, both before Paul's time and during Paul's time, was not marked by stability and peace, but rather turmoil and tension. It was a city that was famous for its moral decay and sexual deviance, and sometimes that leaked into the church. It was a city full of immigrants and traders and transient people. Diversity was a hot topic and created a lot of tension, not just between people, but within the church, sometimes within leaders. In fact, the church was divided over these kinds of issues. We read about it in an earlier letter from Paul, 1 Corinthians in our Bible, where this mistrust always seemed to be lurking between people, and not just between people, but between leaders and people and their leaders. Remember, they said, I follow so, I follow so, I follow so and so, as if somehow That got them the inside track with God. Even Paul was accused of things and attacked. These issues back in ancient Greece, half a world away, 2,000 years ago, seem eerily familiar to the kind of world that we live in now. And if you look at our evangelical world, if you look at many churches and ministries today, it's a sobering picture. We see that human nature hasn't changed. We see that the sobering effects of sin, temptation, are strongly with us. That we experience tensions. External tensions, internal tensions, personal tensions. This is a hard season in our culture for churches and believers. But even when the times, even when the circumstances change, the scriptures tell us that God's mission doesn't. Paul would affirm that the moment we're in doesn't pause the mission we're on. Because precisely into that environment, in Corinth, in society, in the church, Paul writes these words, chapter 2, verse 14. In other words, Paul wasn't about to retract the mission that God had given them. Not because of life or relationships or difficulty. Paul believed that in the middle of that difficulty... The gospel through them shined brighter. But Paul wasn't the kind of leader who minimized the challenges that they face. He knew that the believers in Corinth were weighed down by struggles in life. If you look at the first chapter and a half of 2 Corinthians, you see that. This is the second letter we have in our Bibles from Paul to these believers. And the difficulties and tensions that were evident in the first letter, 1 Corinthians, are now even more so in the second letter. Chapter 2, chapter 1 provide ample evidence of that. There's heartache and grief and conflict all over the place. Let's look at some specifics. First, Paul says that there are personal troubles that he and his team were enduring in gospel ministry. Look at chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. It reads like this. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. That's today, Western Turkey. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. In fact, we felt we had received the sentence of death. That's a remarkable admission from the Apostle Paul. Paul and his team experienced afflictions there in the province of Asia, hardship, oppression, and pressure. And that next sentence stuns us there. Look closely. Paul admits that the pressure of those afflictions in life caused him to despair even of life itself. In other words, Paul was finding it difficult to move on in life. He was under such oppression, psychological, spiritual oppression, That the future of life looked bleak. He was weighed down by the heaviness of life. It was almost debilitating for him. Have you ever experienced that? Where life just weighs you down? Where you can't muster, it seems, the power or strength to move on? Probably you've experienced that at some point in recent years or seen that in others around you. And if that's the case, you're not alone. We're going through one of the most difficult personal and societal phases in our lifetimes. And if you look at the research data, it screams off the page, choose your life stage, choose your age. And the research will tell us about declining personal health in the lives of people. Personal troubles. Second thing that Paul refers to here has to do with misunderstandings about plans and timelines and schedules. Chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, 23 and 24 give us some detail there. Paul said, he wrote to the Corinthians and said, I intend to come visit you on the way to and from Macedonia, which is northern Greece. But Paul ended up not doing so, choosing not to do so for multiple reasons. Circumstances had changed in Paul's life and for his team. And so he chose not to go to Corinth. And that prompted a misunderstanding, a sense of betrayal on the part of the Corinthian church. Paul's integrity was under siege. Paul, we thought you were going to come, and now you aren't. What gives? Does that ever happened to us? Does that ever happened to you or your family or ministries or church? Circumstances change, plans change. Of course it does. The events of the last several years have been misunderstandings on steroids. We struggle to engage with people about issues, justice in society, and character in leaders, and compassion for those who hurt, and the list goes on and on. And it's very easy in conversation to talk past one another. Have you experienced that? I've experienced that. And seen where believers are hurt because they don't feel heard by one another personal troubles, misunderstandings. The third one we see here, relational ruptures. Paul speaks of relational ruptures that threaten the health and the vitality of the believers in Corinth. Look at verse five of chapter two. If anyone has caused grief, Paul writes, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. A little background there. The, the presenting issue was that someone had been in some kind of sin And that person, that man, eventually confessed. But there was a lasting, festering issue in that some of the believers refused to forgive this man. And Paul was concerned about that. Paul said, this is a kind of spiritual test. This is a choice of your obedience. And the same thing is true in the year 2023. Unforgiveness in the face of repentance is a widespread toxic cancer among believers. It's been said that for many people, their bitterness, their unforgiveness is like taking a poison pill and hoping that the other person dies from it. Unforgiveness is toxic. You know any situations like that? Your own life, people around you, it's no exaggeration to say that in recent years, it seems like people have lost their civility, that, that our discourse has lost its filter. And that's not just true of people in the pew, that's true of leaders and, and, and pastors and those with prominence, that we speak in ways that injure and damage one another. I'm intrigued by what Paul says at the end there, chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, and what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive. I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Catch that? Forgiveness is a matter of spiritual protection against Satan. When you and I refuse to forgive, when we refuse to be open to reconciliation, we play right into satanic schemes. That's what Paul's saying here. And Satan likes few things more than followers of Jesus who are more fixated on being right than being righteous. There are a lot of parallels between Paul's difficulties and those of the Corinthians and those that we face here now 2,000 years later. Difficult times. Let's review those. Personal troubles that Paul faced. Personal troubles that caused them almost to the point of despair. Continuing with life. Maybe you can relate with that. Misunderstandings. Paul had certain plans, circumstances changed, his intentions weren't fulfilled, and people didn't understand. They felt betrayed. Can you relate? Internal conflicts or relational ruptures where believers weren't living well together. Someone had sinned, others were unwilling to forgive, and that played right into the hands of Satan. Disharmony. And yet, and yet though all this was going on, painful, divisive, festering, Paul reminded the believers that there's a bigger picture. That what they were feeling and experiencing is not all that there is. That God is not wall in our lives, that God knows exactly what he's doing and that his plans and purposes are far bigger than the things that we see in our own microscopic vision. In other words, Paul wants to say to them, the moment we're in doesn't pause the mission we're on. Paul recounts all of these things and then almost out of nowhere, in chapter two, verse 14, he says this, but thanks be to God, huh, for what? who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. This is one of the most important reality-defining verses in all the Bible because it tells us what's going on in our lives. It gives us perspective amidst all the difficulties of life. Paul refers to something called a Roman triumph, a procession, a parade of sorts. Back then, when a general would go to a land on the edge of the Roman Empire, as he was victorious, he would haul back with him all of the plunder, and there would be a giant parade in the streets of Rome in his honor to, to praise him. Many people were a part of that, members of the Roman Senate, musicians, animals for sacrifice, Spoils of war, thousands of captured prisoners, and of course, the victorious soldiers themselves. And it was an extravagant way for everyone to see the honor and the glory due that conquering general. And Paul uses this image that they would have been familiar with in the Roman world in Corinth to say, and something far greater like that is happening in the spiritual realm. That you and I are part of Jesus' victory parade. Here's the reality, Grace Church of Seal Beach. God is parading you and I through the world, showing off the goodness of Christ in a broken, sinful world so that we might point to the wonder of God. The fragrance of Jesus Christ through us shows off the glory of God. Our lives, our lips reveal Something about a God who saves. You and I are a walking, talking billboard of God's victory in the world. And some people love it, and some people hate it, and some people don't know what to make of it. But this much is sure God wins, and so do we. But it requires us to see what God is doing, it requires us to be conscious of the bigger picture. That our mission is actually to communicate the victory of God in an angry and lost and dying world. And not to do so just locally, that's important, but globally to the ends of the earth, to the nations. We are the aroma of Christ. We are showpieces of a victorious God. The moment we're in doesn't pause the mission we're on. The mission is simply too important to God and too urgent. It cannot stop. We're in the middle of a parade. Think of the analogy of uh, the military in wartime. Maybe consider a battalion or a brigade or a platoon. In in that group, those who serve know that there are going to be obstacles, know that there are going to be setbacks. They know that there are going to be internal tensions and sometimes differences of opinion about how we should proceed and what the best course is. Individuals will see things differently. There are going to be injuries. There are even going to be casualties as we move forward. But the mission cannot be called off for any of those factors because it's wartime and the enemy doesn't take timeouts. The heat of the battle remains and the best units in the military figure out a way to get it done, to move forward despite the challenges and the difficulties. Paul describes our reality like that. He says, You and I, the Church of Jesus Christ, is part of a triumphal procession, a parade, where the victory is already secured by Jesus Christ. The outcome is no longer in doubt. There are battles and skirmishes ahead of us, but it's clear who wins. And for those of us who know Jesus Christ, that is unbelievably good news. We win. Maybe you've noticed in life, in athletics, in other arenas, that those who win conduct themselves in a different way. Winners carry themselves differently. They exude a kind of confidence. They take difficulties in stride. They celebrate their teammates and their leaders. Their presence gives off the aroma, the smell of victory. And you and I, if we know Jesus, should be giving off the aroma of the victorious Jesus. Paul presses that home. Look at verse 15. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Paul says, same smell, different taste. My wife loves fall. Fall at least fall in the Midwest, and one of her favorite fall activities is a campfire. doesn't matter if it's in our backyard or a neighbor's fire pit or a campsite. The smell of fire, a campfire, is, is a sweet aroma to her soul. It reminds her of all the good things of life, warmth and light and s'mores and conversations and family and friends. Fire is a delight. It's, it's the way things should be in her mind. She's drawn to the smell of the fall fire. I have other friends, though, for whom the smell of fire is terrifying, repulsive. You probably know why. They had a house a few years ago that almost burnt down. They experienced a fire that did untold damage to memories and property and safety. So for them, fire is a metaphor of destruction. To smell fire means to be reminded of all the things that they fear, things that destroy. That, friends, is Paul's point here. Our lives give off the smell of Jesus Christ. It gives off the smell of the gospel. The mission of our lives is to give off a smell that elicits one of two different responses. To some, it is the stench of death. To others, it's the fragrance, the aroma of life. And you and I are the smell of Christ. That is our mission locally and globally. The question is, to put it bluntly, how well do we smell? The moment we're in doesn't pause the mission we're on. I'm convinced that this is not only a good summary of 2 Corinthians 1 and 2. I'm convinced not only that this is timely for Grace Church of Seal Beach in 2023. I'm convinced that this is the most needed message for followers of Jesus and for ministries and for churches and for the church of Jesus Christ, especially in North America. Because we're living in hard times times of distraction, times of disappointment, times of distrust. You and I have a lot of reasons to feel wounded, to feel heavy right now. Life hurts. Life overwhelms. But the circumstances of life don't tell the whole story of what God is doing. It can't. You and I are part of God's ultimate victory parade. And we've been called to participate in the greatest mission ever because the gospel is lasting, great news. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the gospel offers hope, that the gospel can unite, that the gospel can rally people together? I do. I believe that for this church. I believe that for our family of churches, the Karis Fellowship. I believe that for the church in North America, I believe that for the church around the world. And I believe that as we take the gospel to lost people among the least reached of the nations, that those desperate to see and hear, some of them will rejoice and join our ranks. Yeah, they'll see our flaws, yeah, they'll see our weaknesses, but they will also smell the aroma of the victory of Jesus Christ and the confidence and hope that they too can have. And for some of them, it will turn out to be the smell of victory, the taste of victory as they embrace the gospel. And that's our mission. Even, especially in times like this. I never cease to be amazed by the courage and the resolve of Winston Churchill. Go back 80 plus years in history, prime minister of uh, England, a man who faced many challenges in his long life, but none greater, arguably, than leading in the midst of World War II against the enemy of the Axis powers. But he was so convinced that his side was victorious, that his side was right, that his side would win, that he said on one occasion to the American president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the following, we shall not fail or falter, we shall not weaken or tire, neither the sudden shock of the battle nor the long-drawn trials of vigilance and exertion will wear us down, give us the tools, and we will finish the job. And so it is with the gospel of Jesus Christ to the church of Jesus Christ. Never forget, the moment we're in doesn't pause the mission we're on. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you that you are the victor and that you have shown that undeniably in the person of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you've called us into your family by your grace and you've called us into your mission by your purpose. And I pray that you would find us faithful. Oh, how we need the power of your spirit to be resilient and tenacious and to have perspective to see life, not just in front of us, but what you're doing in the bigger picture. I thank you for this church and for its location and for its commitments. And I pray that you would help here in Seal Beach and in Orange County and in Southern California. For this church to be a radiant example of people who believe in the victory of Jesus Christ and are willing to do whatever it takes to show that off. I pray that you'd give them vision, that you give them clarity on how that can be part of their mission to the world, and that you would help each of us as we seek out the least reached in our world with the great news of the gospel of Jesus. Thank you for calling us to that mission. In Jesus' name, amen.